0: Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Times and dates are Scott's kryptonite. He was really fascinated with how sideways that got. Them. By the way, I'm going to publicly shame you. Scores of persons in the streets dropped unconscious and several of them died. The Bette's fear. Oh, the Bette's fear, yes, of course. Do you need to change your perspective? I don't think you're supposed to remember past lives. Also, mm. check for notes or an autograph. Sometimes there's one and they... No, yeah. And when her grandmother died... She and her sister fought viciously over this ring.
1: And nobody other than you folks will ever see it again. They're cosmic jokers after me. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Mint Mobile, HelloFresh, our contributors at Patreon.com,
0: and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
1: The Isle of Mull, off the western coast of Scotland, has been inhabited in one way or another for over 11,000 years and anything that old is bound to have its mysteries. There's even a stone circle at Loch Buie off the southern coast of Mull thought to date back to the Bronze Age. The origin of that stone circle is not the only mystery on the island though. In fact, it's home to one of the greatest aviation legends of all time, the Great Mull Air Mystery. Just before Christmas in 1975, Pilot, musician, and real estate investor Peter Gibbs traveled by ferry to mull with his girlfriend, Felicity Granger. Gibbs was an experienced 55-year-old former World War II Spitfire pilot. He traveled there to look at investment properties on the nearby Isle of Skye. On Christmas Eve, he had dinner, including a few drinks, with Felicity at the Glenforsa Hotel, where they had been staying since December 20th. The Glen Forza has its own unlicensed and unlit grass runway and is a well-known aviation destination. After that meal, he decided he wanted to go out and take a solo flight in a Cessna that he had rented from the hotel manager earlier in the week to scout some of the properties he was interested in. That night, Peter Gibbs took off into history. The plane never returned. One would think that, in itself, is a mystery enough. But stranger still, four months later, Peter Gibbs' body would be found. A mile away from the Glen Forza, 400 feet up a remote hill, an additional subsequent search would still find no trace of the Cessna. Things only get stranger from there. The hill had been searched already by authorities after Gibbs vanished. And on top of that, shepherds were working there daily, they would have seen the body. It's impossible to believe it could have been lying there in plain sight for four months.
0: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook,
1: and this is Forrest Burgess. Police at Oban discounted last night a theory that Mr. Gibbs may have jumped from the aeroplane while it was still in the air. A spokesman said his injuries are not consistent with him having fallen or jumped from an aircraft. The Birmingham Evening Mail, April
0: 27, 1976. Join us tonight for the Great Mole Air Mystery. back. I'm kind of surprised you are back, Mr. Big Show Business Pants. I can't believe you have time to slum it around over here. Well,
1: I'm actually recording this for my trailer on a set in Mel's Hole.
0: I wouldn't be surprised. Wait, 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 not really,
2: right? <laughs> oh, of really, course
1: not, not really. Oh, okay. Uh, for those of you that have seen History's Greatest Mysteries on the History Channel, just this past Monday, February the 20th, I was on an episode about the lost colony of Roanoke, which we covered here on the show a while back, and, and I'll be on a few more times. My apologies in advance. And you know, I was on last season for The Summerton Man, right?
0: Ah, uh, yes. And it was an outstanding performance. Sir. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah
1: I wasn't fishing for a couple of minutes, but thank you. I'll take it.
0: <laughs> Folks, if you have the History Channel, I think you can watch it online on their webpage or through the A&E networks or something. They make it available for streaming the very next day. I also noticed, I think they're posting full episodes of the show a week or so after they come out on YouTube for free. So if that happens, we'll share a link. It's not hard to find this stuff these days, but look for that episode. It's a great series in general, but also look for uh, Forrest in the episode from season four about Roanoke.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And as I said, uh, keep your eyes peeled for more stuff in the future. All right, folks, it's time to get to tonight's show about one of the most baffling aviation
2: mysteries ever.
0: Well, before we get into the story, we want to welcome back our friend Paul Gledhill to the show tonight. Paul, thanks for joining us again.
2: Guys, it's great to be back. Thank you.
0: It seemed like it was a good idea to have you on for this since you have proximity to the event and you've spent your whole life in proximity to it, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm a couple of 300 yard, uh, miles south of uh, where, the, where we're going to talk about, but uh, I'm certainly closer than you guys.
0: For people who haven't heard you before, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about your background that you're bringing to the conversation tonight?
2: Sure. I think most relevant to this is uh, my former job as a a police officer with Scotland Yard. And before that, I was in the Royal Air Force as well for eight years. And uh, of course, I'm a podcaster as well, which is how we know each other.
0: Indeed. Uh, And what what did you do with the RAF? Eight years is a long time.
2: Uh, It felt like a long time. Um, (laughs) I was a (laughs) technician for eight years, just working with uh, satellite communications and radio.
0: Okay. And so is that technically, that's like, a, is that like intelligence work?
2: Not so much. Okay. Um, I did work in an intelligence center, but um, yeah, it was uh, it was more technical.
1: Well, unfortunately, or ironically, tonight's story, often we'll have some communications with, uh, you know, in this case, it could be the tower or other uh, ground units, but we don't really have much last minute communication, which on one hand adds more mystery to it. But sometimes when you do get a description from the pilot, like uh, the Frederick Valentich uh, case that we've covered uh, a couple years ago now, that can also add some more mystery. But but here, the lack of communication is odd. But this was a bit of an odd last-minute flight. I mean, so you're you're very well-versed, uh, Gled about airplane communications, ham radio operations, operations in general with uh, communications. All
0: right, you two, I think before we go any further, we should share the full details of what actually happened that night. That sounds like a good idea. Without further ado, let's get into the actual event that inspired this astonishing legend.
1: All righty then. Well, in December of 1975, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody was number one in the UK, Gerald Ford was the President of the United States and Harold Wilson was the Prime Minister of the UK. The end of the year was approaching and 54-year-old Norman Peter Gibbs had decided to travel to the Isle of Mull off the west coast of Scotland with his 32-year-old girlfriend at the time, Felicity Granger. They took a ferry from the Scottish mainland to Mull, the second largest island of the Inner Hebrides. Their destination was the Glenforsa Hotel, a beautiful hotel on the northern coast of Mull, It's quite a romantic getaway with log cabin rooms and an inviting bar. But what it's most famous for is it's unlicensed and at the time, unlit grass airfield. This makes it one of the top aviation enthusiasts destinations in the UK. And it's this airfield that is at the center of tonight's astonishing legend. With 300 miles of coastline and over 3000 residents, the 340 square mile island is by all accounts a stunning place to visit. The trip was a mixture of business and pleasure for Peter Gibbs and his girlfriend Felicity. They arrived on the 20th of December and Gibbs had hoped to scout out some investment property on a short flight north on the neighboring Isle of Skye. By this time, he was the managing director at his own property development company called Gibbs & Ray and had some success with his business. He was having dinner with Felicity at the Glenforsa when he suddenly decided he wanted to prove that you could take off from and land on an unlit grass airfield in the dark. The story goes that he knew how well the Glenforsa did as an aviation destination. The property he was looking at on Sky was a hotel that could have allowed for a similar adjacent airfield. It would seem he wanted to get into the aviation-based hotel business himself. So after this dinner, during which he had enjoyed some whiskey and Felicity some red wine, apparently, he determined that he would climb into the Cessna 150H he had rented to Scout property in the past several days and take off at 9.30 at night in total darkness. To help him pull this off, he took a couple of very small battery-powered flashlights with him, which his girlfriend Felicity placed on the ground at the end of the half-mile-long runway. They were so ineffective that an owl would have had difficulty seeing them. Back inside the hotel, the guests were all fascinated with what he was about to attempt. But it was so dark outside that the glare from the windows made it hard for them to see what he was up to. So naturally, they turned all the lights inside off to see better. Strangely, Gibbs seemed to be warming the Cessna's engine up for an inordinately long period of time. Stranger still, he seemed to turn the landing lights off and on several times. Some witnesses also reported that it seemed like there might be three people on the field, as they would swear they saw the two flashlights moving independently while Peter was inside the plane preparing for takeoff. No third person has ever been identified or found. Add to all of this that Gibbs hadn't had a valid pilot's license for over a year. He had lied and said he hadn't brought it because he hadn't expected to be flying. He was also supposed to wear glasses when flying, but Felicity said that she never saw him do that. It's not clear how he expected to view properties on neighboring islands without flying, so perhaps that was subterfuge. The plane took off into the night. 10 minutes later, it had not returned. David Howitt, the manager at the time, hopped into the hotel's Ford Cortina and went looking for it, even driving down to the water and trying to direct the headlights into the night. He saw nothing. The plane never returned to the airport. Neither did Peter Gibbs. A large search and rescue operation ensued. Nothing was found of either Peter or the plane. Until four months later, in April of 1976, when a shepherd found a body 400 feet up a hillside lying across a large tree that had fallen down. It was definitely Peter Gibbs. He had on the same flying outfit he had been wearing on Christmas Eve in 1975. He appeared to have been dead since the night he went missing and his clothes were the only thing holding what was left of him together. According to those that found him, he had been walking down the hill. Again, no trace of the airplane was present anywhere. Add to all of this that shepherds were working on that hillside daily. It was inexplicable how they couldn't have seen Gibbs' body over the course
0: of four months. Before we dive into the analysis on this, we wanted to add some background on Peter Gibbs because we did some digging and found some really fascinating stuff about his service during World War II.
1: Yeah, and after that, we can dissect all the theories,
0: probabilities, and hypotheses with GLED. Exactly, all right, so let's back up here for a minute. Who was Peter Gibbs? What led to this moment in time for him? This is gonna be the last week of his life. What happened before he got here? Peter Gibbs was definitely a man of action. He was born in England, 1920, he became an RAF Spitfire pilot with 41 Squadron and first flew with them when he was just 24 years old. 41 Squadron had provided air support for both D-Day and Operation Dynamo at Dunkirk. And by the time Gibbs flew with them in 1944, they were training on the new Griffin engine Spitfire Mark 12 built by Supermarine. This plane is still revered today for its speed and prowess. 41 Squadron's mission during that time was to destroy Germany's newest fearsome threat, the V-1 flying bomb, also known as a rocket bomb or, forest? The buzz bomb, because it would make, uh, it, yeah, it, that was what was
1: fearsome to the residents below, is that you would hear it buzzing through the air, and then when the buzzing stopped, that's when it became tense, because you know it was about to hit. Oof. It would stop just before it exploded. Yes,
0: horrifying. So being a pilot and taking these things out, that's real seat-of-the-pants stuff. Listen to these excerpts we paraphrased from a website called wearethemighty.com. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. The V-1s had pulse jet engines, and prop-driven
1: planes couldn't keep up with them. But if a pilot flew to high altitude and then dove toward a passing V-1, the speed from the descent would allow them to keep up. The first intercept took place on June 15, 1944, the third day of V-1 attacks. A Mosquito pilot was able to shoot one down with his guns, and others soon followed. But the pilots had limited ammunition, and it was tough to hit the fast-flying V-1s, and each bomb could kill multiple Londoners if it wasn't intercepted. So some pilots began to experiment with a risky but valuable alternative. If a plane flew close enough to a V-1, the wind off the plane's wings could nudge the flying bomb off course by confusing the gyroscopes. And if the disturbance was enough to flip the V-1 over, known as turtling, then it would often fail to explode and then plummet to the earth. But this had obvious risks. If the pilot accidentally bumped the V-1, they could crash into the ground alongside the bomb. A soft bump was obviously no big deal. It would just help the pilot tip the bomb over. But a harder strike was essentially a mid-air crash, likely clipping or breaking the pilot's own wingtip.
0: All right, so I I have to give a shout out to my 13-year-old son, Rowan, Mm. for bringing this turtling thing to my attention at breakfast the other day while I was working on this part of this outline. He has a freakish knowledge of military aviation history for his age. He
1: is a video game ace, and I think the inspiration comes from wanting to research more. It's like
0: us. Yes. We hear about something, and he's like, I got to find out what's happening with that. Yeah, it's true. He he really drills down on this stuff. He does, yeah. Well, over 1,000 V1s were shot down or nudged off course in flight throughout World War II. According to author Steve Brew in his book, Blood, Sweat, and Courage, 41 Squadron RAF, 1939-1942, published in 2014, 41 Squadron took out 53 of the 1,000 V-1 rockets shot down or nudged off course in flight during World War II. After doing some digging in the UK National Archives, we managed to find a few combat records for a P.N. Gibbs, Although his given name was Norman Peter Gibbs, we've come to believe that he went by Peter Norman Gibbs in the military, and ultimately Peter Gibbs once he was a civilian. Now, the records we found in the National Archives were for a P.N. Gibbs, who appears to have flown at least three combat missions on June 21, 1944, just a few weeks after D-Day, another on June 23rd, and then one again on July 8, 1944, The records detail exactly what happened on those missions. Forrest, can you uh, read those records to our listeners? Yeah, the first
1: one from June 21st, 1944, just 15 days after D-Day, reads as follows. Pilot Officer Gibbs, up, 0745 hours. Combat, 0800 hours. Down, 0845. The location is listed as unknown, but near the coast of Beachy Head, just 50 miles south of his base at West Malling, or maybe 10 minutes in the air. This is south of London on the northern coast of the English Channel, at 4,500 feet and a speed of 300 miles per hour on a north by northwest course of 350 degrees. The remarks on the record saying First attack pieces came off, second attack burst into flames and went down through 1010 cloud spinning. 1010 means the ground was totally obscured. 110 would mean one-tenth obscured. We had to look that up. Yes. (laughs) Well, it does not indicate what he was engaged with, but based on the mission of 41 Squadron at the time, it seems likely it was a V-1 rocket. He went up again just three days later at 0540 hours and at 3,000 feet and 350 miles per hour, took out a definite V-1. The remarks say, jet bomb half rolled continuously after two bursts on a straight and level course, only gradually losing height.
0: After a third burst, it dived into the sea. P.N. Gibbs, pilot officer. In his next and last documented engagement that we could find, on July 8th of 1944, he went up at 9.30 p.m. and engaged presumably another V-1 with remarks indicating it exploded on ground about seven miles north of Eastbourne in wood after two seconds burst at 300 yards. Pilot officer Gibbs clearly was a good shot. That's three encounters we know of, and his son has said that he actually shot down four V-1s. So that's just a little background on his military experience, and it helps paint a picture of the kind of pilot and man that Peter Gibbs was.
1: But let's circle back to his disappearance from Mull all those years later in 1975. Now, the first thing I was wondering, and Glenn, I'll ask you this because I know you've looked into it. There was no kind of radio communication whatsoever the night this happened, right?
2: Yeah, it's really strange. I would have assumed that he'd have contacted the tower for the airstrip that he landed at, which would have been in a hotel. So I'm guessing that the staff at the hotel also ran the airstrip at the time. So the radio would have been in there. And it would be expected that the pilot would call ahead after leaving, you know, just to make sure that there's a place to park his plane when he lands.
0: The question becomes... (laughs) what was on his mind when he took off. It does seem like he was sort of a daredevil, but there's a lot of information and background information going into what led up to this really strange disappearance that is more than just unsolved. It's a level past unsolved because of how confusing the circumstances were in terms of the discovery of his body and the way it was found. And the, so far, not really official discovery of the plane, although some folks think it has been discovered, that has not been confirmed yet. So, officially, the plane is still missing, right? There's We don't have any information that the plane has been definitively identified.
2: Several people have claimed to have found the plane, and uh, there have been misidentifications as well. So, I, I'm not 100% convinced that the aircraft has actually been located properly yet. Have you personally come across any
1: cases where there were so many loose ends, either in your time in the service or on the force? Was there anything where it was just that baffling and left so dangling?
2: I've had paranormal experiences through work, and that's kind of the most baffling that I've had. But I've never had something as confusing Mm. as this particular case. So in your
1: estimation, this would be very unusual. It's not like uh, some folks might say, well, these kind of unsolved things happen all the time, and we just don't hear about them where clues and leads aren't followed up on, and there's just there's very few things to go on, so it's just kind of tucked away. In your experience, this would be highly, highly unusual, once-in-a-lifetime kind of case.
2: Yeah, definitely once in a career for any police officer. And I know that uh, police were actually sent to the island to assist with this, but I'm sure it's something that they've never dealt with the like of before. All right, well, why don't we
0: get into some of the background on this story, and then we'll uh, come back in a little bit and talk about some of these initial details. One of the things that's fascinating to me about this information is that he seems to be a combination of this daredevil who will do just about anything, and also somebody who's so unstable he has a hard time maybe moving up in ranks like can you tell us what because his uh, the service record these incidents that he had with the V1s he's reflected as a rank of pilot officer what does that mean
2: so pilot officer is the lowest commissioned officer rank in the RAF you know, it's the starting point for a commissioned officer. The fact that he didn't move on past that is probably quite telling, to be honest.
0: I mean, he was only 24 years old when he first started flying with 41 Squadron. Would that be an unusual rank for that age? Or it's just more about what would have happened after if he'd ever gone past that?
2: No, I don't think it's that. Uncommon for a twenty-four-year-old to have the rank of pilot officer, but pilot officer is a rank that you wouldn't hold for very long. You, you'd move rapidly up to flying officer and then flight lieutenant. And of course, we we say that different over here. Mm. So, because uh, it's lieutenant, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, lieutenant. Or yes. with yes. slang like <laughs> yes. uh, Louis,
1: so. it could be like second Louis, or you know.
0: I've just got to say, in the research I did, I don't know what rank he ultimately achieved, but this is the rank he was at during these incursions with the V-1 rockets for 41 Squadron.
2: That's really interesting. I I would expect him to get promoted quite quickly.
0: Well, you would think so, because I mean, these are some pretty harrowing encounters. I mean, to me, it's a big deal. What he's doing, you know, taking down these V-1s, one from 300 yards. I mean, that seems to me like that would be a hard shot. In a Spitfire, but I mean, I don't know. I've never, obviously, never flown a Spitfire.
2: (laughs) I don't think there's anything easy about it. The the fact that he was sort of during a a wartime having to engage with munitions from other countries. So, no, I I would expect him to get promoted quicker. I think that pilot officer is uh, very much a starter rank. And bearing in mind that he's engaging missiles from Nazi Germany. And also at other times he would be up against fighters and other types of aircraft from Germany too. And bearing in mind the amount of pilots we would be losing on a daily basis, one would expect him to be getting promoted a lot quicker.
0: Yeah. So he seems a little bit like a maverick in terms of his behavior.
2: Sure. And I I don't think he's on his own with that. There's plenty of um, evidence of maverick pilots in the Air Force in general. I I remember one during the defence cuts back in the day who decided to fly his Hawker Hunter under Tower Bridge. He lost his job over that one. But, you know, it's a real indicator of what these guys are capable of doing. And also that, that real sense of adventure that they've got too.
0: Well it seems like maybe you need that to happen. Maybe that's just part of being a good pilot is to, is having that that desire to push it that far to the edge. I think you're right. this all of this is straight out of top gun, by the way.
1: well, let's not <laughs> characterize every every military pilot <laughs> with this with the same broad brush. You know, there's a lot of no. professionalism, of course, because in that profession, you need to be precise. I mentioned this uh, anecdote before, but a good friend of mine has a friend who was a hornet pilot, I believe, out of San Diego and of course, there's the big base down there. And he asked him once, is it really exciting, you know, being a, a jet fighter pilot? Is it, is it is it thrilling? And, you know, the answer was, well, I wouldn't say it's fun. It can be exciting and exhilarating, of course. But really, you're doing so many calculations in your head as you're flying because it has to be so precise that you're not really having time for any fun or, or hijinks. In that tense scenario, you're constantly... Uh, monitoring everything and having to be totally aware. Now, on the other hand, when it's a more relaxed, I I think aircraft or in this case, when you're a private pilot and it's a little easier to fly, you're not on a mission or anything. And you've done a lot. Scott and I have talked about this before when you get a, uh, well, with Amelia Earhart, she was very experienced, very confident, broke a lot of records and there was a confidence though that may have betrayed her perhaps in some levels at the end uh, you know like cutting the uh, the antenna cable off because she wanted to save the weight and not taking the life rafts not learning morse code there was a lot of shortcuts you think well i don't really need that and so your confidence i think gets you to where you are but also betray you and on the daredevil front i remember my dad talking about uh this would be pre-vietnam but being a combat photographer he flew with a lot of uh, huey helicopter pilots and some of them did a lot of hot-dogging kind of stuff uh herding sheep (laughs) with when they were not on a mission they're just flying around and they'd be watch this and uh, they would do some crazy stunts so that i think there are two signs to this is that you do see a lot of cavalier behavior because these guys are so good and they've had so many hours in their aircraft and are able to do these stunts. And also there's a lot of boredom, as maybe Gled will attest to in the military, where you there's a lot of excitement. Uh, same thing with the police force. Uh, a lot of boredom and a few minutes of intense excitement punctuating your experience. And I think in his case, I don't say he was reckless, but he, he did have an adventurous spirit, perhaps. Uh, certainly a little bit rebellious. And I think, again, maybe a little overconfident, especially in this Christmas Eve, just after dinner, (laughs) joy flight that he decided to take. But I can also see him being that confident where it's like, look, this will just take 10 minutes. So, (laughs) and then we can get on with our evening. And it also reminds me of, uh, I don't know if Glenn had heard this episode, but the Mad Doctor of Spokane where uh, Captain Doolittle would attend those parties uh, of the famed Doolittle's Raiders, the first uh, raid on uh, Tokyo, I believe, right after Pearl Harbor. And he would excuse himself, go up to, I believe, Feltz Field in Spokane, come back and buzz the party with his plane. And this is a guy who who did make rank and was very well respected, yet at the the middle of a party, hold on, folks, hold my beer, I'll be right back, but not on the ground, in the air. And uh, he would just do it for a lark. And so I think there's often a little bit of that adventurous cavalier spirit, and sometimes that gets you into trouble.
0: Hi, everyone. This is Nate Picos of Blambot. And while I'm working on some of your favorite comic books from some of your favorite publishers, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. So we're setting the stage for the background on who the man at the heart of this aviation mystery was. World War II Spitfire pilots were no ordinary pilots. They were extremely skilled and experienced. Yeah, the Battle of Britain. Yeah, exactly. So as if being a World War II Spitfire Mark 12 pilot wasn't impressive enough, Peter Gibbs was also an accomplished musician and played professionally after World War II. We found this interesting passage about Gibbs and the absolute best source of information available online about him, at least with regard to his musical prowess. This is from a blog by composer, musicologist, writer, and broadcaster David Byers. The site is ByersMusic, B-Y-E-R-S, dot com. We'll have a link in the show notes if you want to read more. But Mr. Byers excerpted the following segment from a now-defunct blog attributed to another violinist, famous one, named Peter Carter. Carter was one of the earlier members of the now 70-year-old esteemed Allegri String Quartet, and he joined 25 years after it started. This is from Carter's former blog, and it's about Peter Gibbs. Now, this is Peter
1: Carter talking about Peter Gibbs. Gibbs formed a string quartet, the Peter Gibbs String Quartet. Being made up of very talented young musicians, it was immediately successful, but Peter being Peter demanded such high standards of his colleagues that it inevitably went the way of so many young quartets and disbanded. It wasn't good enough for them to start a movement exactly together, always a point of much rehearsal in the early days of a group. Peter insisted that each member should sit in different corners of the room with their backs to each other and start by some sort of intuition. This and many other idealistic but crazy ideas proved too much for the others who all left and went their separate ways in the world of chamber music. Two of them ended up in the Allegri and were still in it when a quarter of a century later
0: I joined. Gibbs later played at the Queen's College in Oxford in 1947 as well. His name can be found in the program. In the 1950s, Gibbs played in another string quartet that had been formed in 1949 by Neville Mariner. This again from the ByersMusic.com website. This excerpt is from that page, but was originally in the Evening Standard.
1: Peter and I would go up in his tiger moth, chuckles Mariner. We once bombed the LSO. London Symphony Orchestra bus with flower bags. The 1950s were rumbustious times in the London orchestras. The LSO sacked its conductor, Joseph Cripps, after he physically assaulted the manager, and Karayad walked out on the Philharmonia after Gibbs stood up and berated him for arrogance, which we'll talk about here in a second. So even while being a musician, he was still flying and doing crazy things in his own de Havilland Tiger Moth, which is a single-engined biplane, bombing the London Symphony Orchestra bus with flower. And by the way, that was the very first airplane ride I ever took. There was by uh, folks, there was a guy who's, uh, it was like an airfield, right? So it was kind of a half-developed, I think they had one uh, train engine on display. Yeah. Uh, So uh, I guess it was in the area of Silverwood. Folks would know that in the the early days. But I think there was a guy, he had his Tiger Moth biplane there. And he was giving rides for like 15, 20 bucks or whatever. So, and you go up for like 10 minutes. So that was my first plane ride in a Tiger Moth. And it was a lot of fun because it's an
0: open, of course, it's an open cockpit kind of thing. And uh, very exhilarating. Yeah, it reminds me of that era that you obviously predates you and I, but barnstorming and pilots going around yeah. trying to make money, taking kids for rides or what. I'm so jealous of that. I have never been up in an open <laughs> cockpit plane. I think that would be so much fun.
1: Yeah, it is. It, you can see the appeal, let's say. And it's like the same between you can be in your very uh, quieted cabin of your luxury automobile and it's a lot different being on a motorcycle. Yeah. You know i saying like there's yeah. an
0: exhilaration there you don't get in your quiet cabin with your Bose speakers. And all yeah, that. that's so true. That's so true. Well, so it's at this point we learned that he recorded several albums in a series of revolutionary recordings of music by composer Henry Purcell, who lived from 1659 to 1695. He is considered the greatest English opera composer of all time. One of his compositions was reworked into the title music for A Clockwork Orange. Pete Townsend has cited his Mm -hmm. work as inspiration for both Won't Get Fooled Again and Can See for Miles, as well as Pinball Wizard. And during the mid-1950s, there was an American record label uh, formed called Vanguard Records. They spun off another label called the Bach Guild. The Bach Guild recorded a few albums of Purcell's work, and Peter Gibbs, the fighter pilot and violinist played on several of those recordings. This means that you can, in fact, listen to him play even today, right now on Spotify. We'll have links to those tracks. He played violin with the Philharmonia Orchestra from 1954 to 56 when he went to play for the London Symphony Orchestra. Yes, those are two different things. There's also mm-hmm. the London Philharmonic. Right. All of this is impressive, but there is the story of a brash conflict, which we alluded to earlier, attributed to pilot Peter Gibbs and famous Austrian composer Herbert von Karajan. A story so infamous, it has been recounted multiple times throughout history with varying details as it possibly, like the Air mystery, mm-hmm. has become legendary itself. It's a story about egos And you can see why we might have added it here for you to get some more background on Peter Gibbs.
1: These excerpts are from a book published in its entirety online by a double bassist named John Honeyman, and again brought to our attention by the aforementioned Byers website. Now this is from chapters 22 and 23 of Honeyman's book, originally posted by David Byers. This is just one telling of this story, but covers the broad strokes. On the last part of the tour, Eastern Seaboard of the USA, November 1955, Prior to our final concert in Boston, we, the Philharmonia, played in one or two lesser venues, a couple being in converted swimming pools or a town hall where the acoustic left much to be desired. Karajan seemed to feel that these places were beneath him, and at the end of these concerts, he gave a particularly ungracious and abrupt reception to the applause. There was a fine violinist called Peter Gibbs who had come as an extra. Peter had been a Battle of Britain fighter pilot, so presumably had not much time for Stroppy Germans. Although normally a quiet, mild-mannered, and gentlemanly chap, he seemingly became particularly resentful of this behavior by Carrion. At the end of the rehearsal for the last concert in Boston, he stood up and in restrained and polite fashion asked Mr. Carrion if he could address a few words to him. I immediately thought, what a good idea! Instead of the vote of thanks coming from the leader, Manuk Karikian, as would have been normal, the address was to be made by a back desk player. As Peter's quiet but firm speech went on, we began to realize this was no eulogy, but in fact a strong complaint and a dressing down of Kiryat for his rude behavior after the last two concerts which Peter pointed out had offended a number of his friends in the audience, who had looked forward to and made some effort to come to the concert. He finished by asking Carrion to offer an apology for his recent behavior and sat down. Carrion made his usual muttering and spluttering sound when at a loss and dismissed Gibbs with a shrug and indeterminate wave. Peter stood again and quietly said, I do not consider that that constitutes an apology, Mr. Carrion. Whereupon Carrion stormed off and sent Jane Withers, the Philharmonia's managing director, back to the platform to announce that Carrion had instructed her. If that man played in the concert, he would not conduct. The orchestra had an immediate impromptu meeting at which it was decided that there was a definite fault in Carrion's behavior, but that Peter could have chosen a more discreet method of showing his displeasure. Most of the members were beginning to regard Carrion's arrogance as more than tiresome, so it was agreed that it would be left to Peter Gibbs to decide if he wished to take part in this last important concert and we would support his decision either way. He said he had contracted to do the tour so he would prefer to complete the engagement. This was relayed to Carrion who eventually conducted the concert in a normal and orderly fashion. The final chapter in the Carrion saga was as follows. Shortly after our return to London and again at a session in Kingsway Hall, we were told by Walter Legg that a letter had arrived from Carrion's solicitors in which he accused the orchestra of having gone on strike in Boston and insisting that all members should admit this and sign the enclosed document, which was in effect an abject apology to Carrion. A meeting was held at which various members expressed their opinion of this further example of Carrion's arrogance, including Dennis Brain and other leading members, including Manug Parikian who had bad flu, but got out of his sickbed to express his objection to this unprecedented display of Prussian behavior by Karajan. When Walter Legg tried to smooth things over and persuade the orchestra to sign, I pointed out that we would be the laughing stock of the orchestral world if we signed this intolerable document. One could easily imagine Karajan sadistically framing it and hanging it like a trophy in the that varanzahl The result was that it was returned to Carrion, unsigned and without further comment, although, unbelievably, there are always some creeps in every organization, some of whom were prepared to sign. One, true to his normal form, said, When I remonstrated with him, well, he brings us a lot of money. Carrion made no further reference to the matter. After all, he had got what he wanted, thanks to the Philharmonia. He simply issued a statement to the German press as follows, As he had now been appointed to the Berlin and Vienna Philharmonics, he no longer had time to work with foreign orchestras such as the Philharmonia.
0: It's an amazing story. You can see why it has legs, why that story Mm. keeps getting around. So so here's the extra background on that. Von Kerion had been a member of the Nazi Party from 1933 to 1945. So you can understand why pilot officer Gibbs, having shot down at least three and, according to his son, four V-1 rockets personally at great peril in World War II, and I'm sure lost several friends in 41 Squadron, was not too happy about working with him. Von Kerion is estimated to have sold over 200 million records. And according to an April 2008 NPR story by Richard Osborne maybe the highest-selling classical recording artist of all time. Wow. Yeah. So in 1946, von Karajan was cleared of illegal activity during the Nazi period. But again, that clearly held no water with Gibbs, who found him to be arrogant and rude. And Gibbs, as we have seen, is not one to hold his tongue. In fact, in another story, Gibbs supposedly collected grasshoppers and a paper lunch bag prior to a von karajan <laughs> conducted <laughs> performance and then dumped them out on the floor of the orchestra pit during the show. That was such great fun. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that is.
0: at least they weren't
1: roaches, which uh, you never get rid of again. Oh, yeah, no. Well, he's a bit of a prankster, and again, he had uh, survived a world war, and it would have let it go, I think, had this guy not been so pompous, but there you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, He did not want to back down. Well, here's another bit of insight into Gibbs's personality from the buyer's website. Businessman and fellow violinist Morrison Dunbar, who flew once with Peter from Glasgow over Loch Lomond. And the Trossics could tell that Gibbs was navigating with only a small paper automobile club map book, and if he became disoriented, he would descend low enough to read the road signs. Now uh, I, I'll just I'll just quickly say here, okay that ties in with the with the idea that uh, you know he gets lost in the dark flying and, and sleet is picking up or whatever. Yeah, maybe he got low to see the road or a, a try to find the coastline or something. Yeah, and just didn't realize how low he was.
0: It's insane. But yeah, I kind of love it. This, <laughs> it. it is he's, fun. He's clearly a real character. Right. I don't fully understand why the military referred to him as unremarkable. Mm. Maybe Mm. he just wasn't as skilled as they wanted him to be, but he seems skilled to me. Yeah. I don't know. It seems like knowing him would have been kind of fun. Although I suppose he also could have been a lot to be around. Everybody has friends that are (laughs) sort of fun, but hard to be around. Which is true. And he also, I don't think we said this, he's a striking looking dude. He looks Mm. like a leading man from a 19... He's got... Big, perfect, like George Clooney in his prime hair and like, yeah, he's he's a very good looking dude. So, you uh, you know, it seemed like he probably having his way with the world. I'm picturing a little bit of Edward Fox, perhaps. Ah, yes, indeed. Well, he
1: did ultimately achieve success as a musician. By around 1970, Gibbs was actually leading the BBC Northern Ireland Orchestra in Belfast, which had been founded in 1966. This is now the Ulster Orchestra.
0: So he's actually really wrapped up in two crazy stories which I think tells us a lot about his personality. I think all of this does. He seems to be a rogue element, but he also has talent and skill. He's a good pilot and he's a talented musician. Now, he's not, at this time anyway, leading the violin section when he tangles with Cardion, right? But he later does wind up becoming a leader in other orchestras. So he definitely moved up in that way. So I feel like this background information tells us a little bit more about what his state of mind is the night that he decides to go up at the Glen Forza Hotel. What do you guys think about that?
1: Well, I think that one statement is very telling, is that it was a wild time, and that after World War II, things changed a lot. Yes, there was a lot of uh, jubilation that the war had ended, but a lot of people, from what I've read, the accounts, and of course my grandfather was uh, in World War II, and he was very open about telling Uh, stories and anecdotes and viewpoints from that era. Uh, Not shy about that at all. And you heard of a lot of people feeling maybe displaced when they came back from the war because either their jobs weren't there anymore or they'd been taken over and they felt a little bit lost because you had a tremendous purpose, which saved the world. And now you come back and it's like, well, your job at the department store is no longer here. That's been filled by somebody else at at a cheaper rate. And so there's a lot of disillusionment as you can see, exemplified in the award-winning movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, where things aren't totally rosy. But again, a lot of people were celebrating. So it was a pretty wild time in the, in the couple of decades right after that. And that's what we're talking about here. If you're looking at the uh, 1975, when the incident occurred, it wasn't that long ago. And that was another uh, a long period of change here where you had a change of uh, societal norms, let's say, with the beatnik and the hippie movements and the, the love generation. And now you're in the swingin' 70s and regulations weren't as tight as we're seeing with Peter here. Yes, he chartered the plane. Uh, he really though legally should not have been flying that night <laughs> for a few reasons. And I think his attitude is reflective of all of that change since World War II and then in the uh, generations after that. People had differing viewpoints of authority it's also the statement that Peter made to uh, von Karajan, that I didn't spend last four years of my life battling bastards like you to put up with this nonsense, paraphrasing. And that if you uh, and Scott, I'm sure you you know this from your older uh, relatives' letters here as well, is that when you get to a certain age, you don't really care about what people think or authority, and uh, the rules are bendable here and there. And certainly Peter wasn't that old. He was a uh, 54, right? I believe at the time of the flight about to turn 55 the next day on Christmas day, he was a Christmas baby. And I think he'd been through a lot. I think my, my point here is that people that had survived world war II, and with a little bit of distinction and saw some action, the rest of the world and, and people's attitudes and standing on ceremony didn't matter as much. <laughs> you would already seen the worst that humanity could put out there. So here, I think this guy who had had a lot of life experience, as you said, Scott, very talented at what he did. He was a good pilot, a good musician, good enough to get on several symphonies. And he had been through World War II and didn't uh, really feel like putting up with guff and and wanted to do what he did. So why not go for a 10-minute joyride? Well, Glad, what do, you, what do you think about this military man and musician and all around a uh, bit of a
2: rascal? I think I've got a lot of respect for the skill as an aviator, being able to take mm-hmm. down those missiles. Yeah. But he's clearly, as he's aged, become kind of this really colourful, irreverent character who doesn't take fault lightly. Yeah, You know, the way that he stood up to the other guy in the orchestra as well, it's just like, I'm not, I'm not going to stand for anything here, and I don't care who has to hear right. what I'm going to say. So it doesn't surprise me as being the sort of guy who would just take a plane Go on a joyride, and see what happens.
0: And your mind, or at least me, I know. Like I've always wanted to be that guy when I was a kid, <laughs> but I don't think I ever got there. No, you're you're a rule follower. Yeah, I was yeah. at a party one night, and I I told everybody at the party if they gave me like five dollars, I would jump in this very cold lake behind the <laughs> house that the party was at. That's about heck. I'll do
1: that now. <laughs> just just a, you don't know, you could just fake it. Just come back to the uh the you know the video camera. Uh, something wet. But the idea, though, is that we're of... uh, I think Scott and I, and from what I know of Glad, is that you do some fun things, but you also weigh the circumstances in that if I say this... I will be sacked, I will be fired, I will have to look for another job. And if I do this, well, I might crash into something. So that maybe that's not a good option. And, and certainly we've all done very minorly risky things in our youth. But like I said, that certain set of circumstances and experiences that he went through, Gibbs had gone through, especially in World War II, like I said, you, uh, you a lot of pilots did not come back. And I think if you make it through that, you feel like you've earned something. It's like, hey, I, I deserved this. I've earned the right to stand up for myself, be a, a prickly pear if I choose. And now that we know a few aspects of his personality and some insight into his character, let's take a look at the course of events that led up to Mr. Gibbs' fate on Christmas Eve after a lovely dinner at around 9 to 9.30 p.m., December 24th, 1975.
0: I've listened to a couple of other podcasts on this, two in particular. One, glad that you had mentioned to me before that you had heard by a British gentleman named Punt P.I., I I think is the name of it. Oh, yeah. 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 That's a great show, a BBC show. And he had a really good episode on this uh, where he talked to a lot of witnesses and went there, which is awesome. And then also listened to another show that I listen to frequently called The Trail Went Cold, hosted by Robin Warder, which is a a good show here in the States. I have great admiration for him because he's very detail-oriented. He digs up a lot of the details that other people overlook or don't share. And I I think Punt is restricted by his airtime, but for the amount of time that he had, he talked to everybody alive who had something to say about it, including author uh, Alan Organ, who is the only one who's written, I think now, two books about this disappearance, which are out of print and very hard to get from what I understand. Tess did find a link for us to one of them, but it's published as you order, so it's not exactly a fast process. I do want to order it, though, because I, I would like to read what Mr. Organ has to say about it.
1: Well, the other thing, though, about this story is that this was a couple of years now, because it's been an open tab on my work computer here for at least a year and a half, two years, when Gled here uh, introduced it to us, and I was not familiar with it. And so it's been covered a, a few places here, but not widely. And that's the other thing we like to bring to our audience are stories that they may not have heard of, or ones maybe you heard the name, but you don't know a lot about it. So we get to learn alongside everyone else. But also, once you start looking at it, it's not a terribly in-depth, you know, decades-long kind of story with a long timeline, but it's very strange for an intense period of time. That's overnight, essentially. It's basically something that happens within maybe 10, 15 minutes. Actually, we don't know how long his ordeal lasts that night because everybody that was witnessing it, including his girlfriend at the time, lost contact with him, lost sight of him. And so we don't know exactly what happened to him, but it should have been only five or 10 minutes. And it turned into a massive mystery just four months later with a very unsatisfactory ending. And just more questions than, uh, than answers. So that's also why I like this story. But yes, Robin does a great job as always uh, being, being much more concise than us and still giving you all the details. But also the BBC audio is great to listen to. But yeah, it's one of those things where it hasn't been done to death.
0: Well, certainly not in the States. So there are a lot of different theories about this. I kind of want to just bounce around with you guys. Glad since we have you here. I know that you have some observations that you've made on your own independently and looking into this. And Forrest, I know that we're going to both have a lot of different thoughts about this. The first thing that comes to mind, and and that's why we wanted to paint this story of, of what Peter was like before we got to the actual event. It's like, what kind of person are we dealing with here? Because a lot of times when you come across a legend like this, you don't really know much about the person going into it. And that adds to the intrigue in an unhelpful way, because you need that background to understand a little bit more about what might have happened. You got to go back and look at the person. What kind of person is this? Because who finishes this dinner after dark and decides to go out in an airplane that he's not even his, he's paid someone else to use this airplane and take off on a grass runway at night that has no lights? And also after whiskey and red wine. Now, one of the things that doesn't get mentioned a lot, but Robin Warder did mention it, was that his birthday was that night. It was the eve of his birthday. He was going to turn 55 the next day. We know that he was there. It's business and pleasure. Obviously, he's there with his girlfriend, but also he's looking at properties. He's already had success with property. I'm kinda thinking that he's thinking this place is pretty cool. When Punt covered it on his podcast, uh, Punt PI, one of the things he mentioned was that this is quite possibly, he didn't say definitively, but he said quite possibly the only hotel in the UK with its own unlicensed grass landing strip. And it's clearly, when you go to their website, it's an aviation destination, just like Albuquerque, New Mexico is for hot air balloons. There's all kinds of events there. There's some annual event happening where people fly in that's just had its 50th anniversary. And it's wonderful biplanes and amateur flyers and that sort of thing. So it seems like an amazing place. You can see why he is a property developer and a rogue or a rascal, as Forrest said earlier, will go here and think, hmm, why don't I get a hotel on another island around here? And I can capitalize on what this one's already proven is a working business model. And and maybe people can fly back and forth between my hotel and this one and everything will be wonderful. So All right, fine, now he's having this dinner, it's Christmas Eve, he's had a few drinks, and some people have speculated that he wanted to prove that you could take off and land in the dark on an unlit grass runway. So he goes out there with Felicity, they have a couple of torches, and I just wanna remind people in the States that torches in Scotland and the UK, that's gonna mean flashlights, it's not actual burning rags on the end of a stick, right? Which would be easier to see than a flashlight (laughs) or a torch. They're
1: still living in the Middle Ages.
0: right. If you're still living in the middle. So there are folks in the hotel, and keep in mind, like we said, they turned off the lights because they were trying to reduce glare and make it easier to see outside, I guess. Maybe in theory, they were also trying to make these two little lights on the runway easier to see. But they may have inadvertently caused a bigger problem by making the structure itself almost completely invisible to him, which is ironic. I think am I using irony properly there? <laughs> no,
1: that's yes, it's uh it was an inadvertent irony in that had they had the lights on in the bar observing him flying around because that was uh, a little bit of ex- entertainment there, he may have seen a light being a visual marker on the ground which may have helped him, but you can't
0: we, you know, we don't say know that for, for sure. Certain.
1: It's just part of the theory. But it makes sense, though, that they would turn out the lights in the bar so they could see his plane's lights better.
0: And Because a lot of these people probably were pilots themselves.
1: Uh, or had flown there, sure. Because in an island life, you're either uh, coming by ferry or uh, you're coming by air. And he had disappeared over the tree line, according to them. And so they lost sight of him anyway. It's not like he was flying around and they could see him. You know, circling, it's like, oh, he seems lost. Now he has no visual uh, marker on the ground, which also Flight 401 over the Everglades was completely black. And the plane is descending so slowly that nobody in the cockpit realized that somebody had bumped the autopilot and it was gradually descending because there was no uh, lights on the ground at all. They had, it was a, I think, nearly a moonless night, or in this case, uh, it was moonless. Right. So very uh, little illumination for anything on the ground. But we're speculating, we don't know where he was. Nobody could see, there's no black box to be recovered. So in this case, we have no idea what happened after he disappeared over the tree line. Right. But in speaking about irony, in this case, yes, if he had uh, tried to use the bar lights as as a ground marker or uh, or a visual indicator, and they turned them off just to see him, that's the irony part. And that they did it to be able to observe him, he needed lights to be able to observe the ground, And therefore, they may have hastened to crash. Yes. Uh, But we can't say this. We don't, we absolutely do not know. And that's what adds to this mystery is that he was not observed. Nobody saw lights blink out. They didn't see uh, or hear of any crash. Now, somebody had heard an airplane, they believe, do some circling. And I think that was an Oban where people had heard a plane around that time. They suspect it was his, but nobody heard a big splash or a crash or anything. That was just the end of it. And he wasn't far enough away, in my opinion, that nobody should have heard anything. There was no crash found still to this day. If he had crashed in the water, you may have heard something. But it, it's hard to tell because, again, a storm was moving in. And that can mask sounds, I've noticed. However, something I was going to mention at some point when I had the opportunity is that even here in Los Angeles, I noticed that when we have heavy overcast and uh, and often at night, I'm able to hear passenger jets go over a lot better. It's somehow that it is, uh, this is my uninformed opinion, but I, it seems to me like the sound is, uh, is coming back, uh, being reflected at me a lot more concentrated because I do notice it. And I was like, well, I could really hear that jet go over where most of the time you don't notice it. And then I will also notice that it's very overcast. So as a storm's coming in, may, maybe that affected, uh, any possible sound of a water crash or a water landing. Hey folks, we wanted to talk to you about a great podcast we recently discovered
0: called Everything is Creepy. Uh, yeah, in case you didn't know, everything is creepy. Yes, <laughs> everything. Parenting, creepy. Social media, creepy. Pizza, <laughs> yes, even that can be creepy.
1: Lauren z has built an online career as a content creator on YouTube by playing video games that may seem normal or even cute on the outside, but are actually super weird, creepy, or even terrifying beneath the surface. Join Lauren and her husband Bobby as they turn this concept into a podcast by talking about completely normal everyday topics that will slowly descend into discussing the dark, weird, or creepy side of it.
0: You know what? This show really shifted my perspective on, well, everything. Because once you hear Lauren and Bobby talking about this stuff, they couldn't be more right. Everything really is creepy. (laughs) I was just listening to an episode a few weeks ago about restaurants. You think, oh, restaurants, restaurants, right, whatever. But the truth is they are kind of creepy. A bunch of people you've never met Fixing you food in a room you've never been in or seen. Uh, They could be doing anything in there. Is it clean? (laughs) Who are these people? Why should you trust them to feed you? Plus, you're surrounded by other strangers, too, while you're eating. That is all true. Yeah, once you start to think about it. We're
1: all a lot closer to creepiness than we think. Pretty much all the time. Everything is creepy is interactive, too. Fans can submit their creepy topics by leaving a voicemail at 929-390-8464 for a chance to be featured on an episode. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts with new episodes every Wednesday, and watch on YouTube the following day. You'll
0: never look at everything the same again. It has seriously shifted my perspective. (laughs) Ooh.
1: Hi, I'm Austin Valancourt. When I'm not building boats... Oh, hang on. When I'm not doing yard work... Oh, wait. When I'm not doing arts and crafts... Ah, jeez. I listen to Astonishing Legends doing all that stuff, and you should too.
0: Well, coming down to the theories, the first and most basic one is essentially that he had been drinking, he had a buzz, he got in the plane, he couldn't see the runway, he ditched it, swam ashore, and then hiked up the hill and died. But that one has a flaw, right? His body would have been laying there for four months in this field that shepherds were supposedly operating in daily. Why didn't they see it? That's the biggest problem with that one. I mean, that's one of the biggest yeah. problems. The other problems with that particular theory and different iterations is they found no trace of salt water on his clothes or his body. And the hike itself appears to be incredibly difficult. And when um, Hunt Punt had on Alan Organ, the author, he said that he tried to make the hike himself in broad daylight and as an experienced hiker, and he got about halfway up and had to turn back. It was so difficult. So does it seem like if he came out of the water and swam ashore, that in itself would be hard enough. But then after that, to come up, he would have had to cross the road that leads back to the Glenforza. If you'd just taken a right and gone down the road a mile and a half or two miles or a, mile or a kilometer and a half, he would have gotten back to the Glenforza Hotel. But instead he crossed that road and went up the hill and died. None of that makes sense. And so what I, I can't understand in the part of that theory how people explain the fact that his body was laying out there for four months. And we've had varying descriptions on the state of his body, right? Was I the only person that found that?
2: No, there's uh, at least two versions of how the body was.
0: It was one that's indicated that it was skeletal, right? And then there's another one indicating that it didn't look bad for having been outside for four months And in fact, you could see a slight cut on the leg, which appeared to be the only injury it had. And that seems pretty strange to me. But with the shepherds in the fields and being out there regularly, wherever this was, I also can't figure out how they wouldn't have noticed him. But let's say that's just an oversight. Let's say it's this one shepherd and he's not particularly attentive. Maybe he's on his cell phone all day. Oh, wait, they didn't exist. But there's got to be a reason (laughs) that he didn't notice. But here's the other thing that goes against the swimming idea. He was wearing heavy flying boots. So you would think when you get in the water that you probably wouldn't try to swim with those. I don't know. I mean, I've been in the water clothed for emergency training. I'm sure you have, Gled, because you were actually in the service.
2: Mm.
0: What do they teach you if you go in with like heavy boots on? Do you keep them on?
2: Uh, you try to keep the clothing on that you've got. Yeah. But uh, equally, there's an expectation that you're going to have some sort of flotation device with you so the the boots aren't such a problem. However this guy wasn't in a military plane. He was in a civilian Cessna. So I think it's fair to assume that he didn't have any of those aids. So swimming with the heavy boots on would have been so difficult for him.
0: Yeah, that's what I would think, especially after theoretically ditching. Now, if he didn't ditch, then the next question becomes, where's the plane? We certainly would have found it by now. The island is not big. It's not densely populated, but there are enough people there and enough visitors and enough tourists and enough people flying around, especially in that area, that you would think if the plane had crashed on land, it would have been found relatively quickly. So would we say collectively that uh, the three of us at least agree that the plane went into the drink, that it went into the water, most likely?
2: I, d- I don't think there's any doubt about okay. that.
0: What about you, Forrest?
2: I'm going to say we don't know,
1: okay. because uh, as we discussed before this, the two major claims that some part of it had been uh, at least observed in the, uh, the second case with, I think, the, the muscle uh, dredger digging up uh, delicious seafood is that a propeller, possibly a piston from the engine of the plane uh, or part of a propeller, had been recovered and given back to, I believe, the hotel owner. And I believe, Scott, there's no proof of uh, really definitive proof that any part of this plane has been found. So we're back to the Frederick Valentich case, where people had said, oh, I thought I saw a fuselage uh, in that area, or uh, something washed up, or even Amelia Earhart, where there's a uh, the rim of a hatch that washes up on Nicomaroro, and nobody can prove one way or the other. It's just people will use these items to confirm their suspicions, but it's not even evidence. It could be something else. So I would say the jury is still out on if that actually went into the water. But if you're looking at a logical, reasonable, non-forest explanation, then it had to have ended up in the water. There's certainly a lot of water around the location, and it just hasn't been found yet. But We were talking about this earlier. Aviation mysteries are a particular uh, just curiosity all on their own. Just so weird. I remember that episode of UFO Hunters. They were looking for the case of a private plane that was reportedly uh, harassed or caused to water ditch by a UFO off of Catalina, off the coast of Southern California. So the team had gone out there Looking for this plane. And of course, it just took off from the runway. It was a similar kind of thing where it should have been tracked very easily by air traffic control, either on the island or on the mainland. And it just disappeared after reporting some kind of strange lies, just like Fred's case. And so they went looking for this plane where they had pretty good coordinates and they get down there and they find a plane. It's just not the plane they're looking for, it was another crashed plane same thing with flight 19 you find other planes yeah <laughs> when you're when you're looking for the one you're it's just so it's such a strange mysterious thing because we have this big disconnect between terra firma where we are supposed to be and the realms of space and water where we have forced our way in which is a completely unnatural but uh, we have mastered it in a way but it's still in control of us and when we venture out into these uh, realms strange things and mysterious things can happen. So heading towards my theory, this is basically all just a missing 411 case in the air because a lot of things line up. And when you're ready for it, I'm going to hit you with all that, but not right now.
0: Okay. All right. Let me ask you this next question, Uh, especially you, uh, uh, Gled, having had experience doing investigations in the UK. What do you think about this theory that he was some kind of spy or somehow connected to Irish dissidents?
2: Oh, that's really interesting. So... It certainly wouldn't surprise me if an ex-military pilot was approached to do work on behalf of the intelligence services. The issue I've got with it is the theory that he had been abducted and killed by Irish Republican uh, paramilitaries. So I'll, I'll try to explain why. So back in the 60s through to the 90s was a period of time known as the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And there were officially 16, I think, people who were known as the disappeared. We know, one, that British agents or suspected British agents were killed by these uh, Irish Republican groups. However, all but one were buried without trace in Ireland. The other one who wasn't buried in Ireland was buried in France, if I remember rightly. And to go against that methodology to abduct this potentially British spy and then place his body back on the island just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. It just goes against everything that they did.
0: Okay. So for you, that's ruled out as a possibility.
2: Yeah. I just don't think it makes sense. I mean, okay, is it possible? Yes, it's possible. Is it likely? I'm going to say no. Mm. One
0: thing that I've definitely noticed, and I mean, Forrest and I talked about this with the Somerton Man, but it's not just the Somerton Man. When you look at the broader spectrum of mysterious deaths where people turn up, and in a lot of cases aren't identified, but even when they are identified, but they've died under mysterious circumstances, one of the top one or two things that's posited is that they were some kind of spy. It happens every time. And if you look at mm, the yeah. old episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, there's the guy who jumped on the outside of a Cessna like, and hung onto the wing and then fell to his mm-hmm. death while it was taking off. There's the Somerton man, of course. And the jury's still mm. out on, on him, even though he's been identified. We still don't know why he was in the area. That's but right. it's the same thing with this. It's the same thing with any time that somebody has a mysterious death and whether they're identified or not. Somebody is always like, oh, they're a spy, they're a spy, or they're a spy. Of course, spies mm-hmm. get killed. I mean that happens. Sure, but to your point, Gled, it does seem like it would. E- it might be more discreet, unless you're Moscow and you're pushing people out of windows. But that—that's you know—that's a different story. Oh,
2: I think. Mm-hmm. okay. Then I was just thinking about the Moscow thing and Cessna pilots. Uh, there was a guy called Matthias Rust who uh, was a German teenager who flew a plane. I think it was from Germany into hmm. Red Square in Moscow. I remember that and. Uh, I wonder whether he was arrested for espionage.
0: I remember that too. Um, I don't remember what happened, but I remember that event. What does it say? I'm,
2: I'm just I'm just looking at it now just to see. What yeah, what year to was him. that? Uh, 1987, 28th of May, 87.
0: Oh, see, I was a I was a month from graduating high school.
2: Actually, flew from Keflavik. I just think it's relevant, yeah. you know, because it's like it's like shenanigans in Cessnas again. Charged with hooliganism and. Disregard of aviation laws and for breaching the Soviet border, so not um, not espionage. It's a thing, though, isn't it? Where people get in a small plane, they just go and do stuff. (laughs)
1: Uh, No, that uh, happens. That uh, that was a recent, uh, somewhat recent one. Uh, Somebody had stolen one of those Canadair regional jets, uh, which is a turboprop, or or one one of those turboprops, and uh, was doing stunts. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the Excitement of flight—that's one thing. But people do it in cars here all the time. It's just so common, especially in LA, that nobody uh, really pays much attention. But they're still dominating the news when there's a high-speed chase or a slow-speed chase. But with an airplane, there's a lot less accessibility, and you also have to know how to fly it. And Scott, remember the case we were following with the the young Robin Hood they were calling him of—he uh, he was stealing regional oh, planes the barefoot, and was on the run.
0: The barefoot pilot, the barefoot or or
1: bandit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah uh, who eventually got chased down. But people were rooting him on because there's a a bit of a pirate uh, adventure with that. Uh, unfortunately, he ruined a few really lovely planes and personal property of people that, uh, especially one uh, that restored plane that guy had been spending like 10 years trying to fix up, and he crashed that one. And uh, you don't get that back. But, you know, these cases, there's something about commandeering an aircraft where you're you're hard to chase right you can't just be uh chased by police cars or anything you you can be shot down but that's pretty rare unless you're a balloon nowadays and in this case i think there's something that was immediately appealing especially maybe after a couple of drinks to gibbs that let me just go get this out of my system right now like i said it's a it's a weird time to be doing it's christmas eve for crying out loud you know what i'm saying like you're with your girlfriend you just had a nice dinner and I could see more readily, this is where I thought it was unusual that if he had planned something, even as uh, an impromptu thing, like, hey, you want to go for a, a flight, a nighttime flight, because it's beautiful to see the lights at night. And uh, well, there's no moon, but I'm saying the moon on the, uh, on the water, it's a lovely thing. I have taken a flight in a private aircraft at night, kind of later, and it's very peaceful. It's a lovely little thing. I can understand if it was more of a something even spontaneous that he wanted to take his girlfriend on, you know, nice little after dinner thing. We'll do that. We'll come back and then, uh, uh, you know, tuck in for the night. But here it was, excuse me while I go on a solo flight by myself, leaving her there whole, holding a couple of powerful flashlights on a cold sleety night where actually a bad weather's coming in too. It's like, it's an odd thing to do. You know what I'm saying? it's It's a very weird thing. And I don't know if he had some other purpose but it would make more sense if he did. You know what I'm saying if if there was some ulterior motive that uh, he needed to drop something out of the plane, I don't know, you know, but it's just it's a very strange thing to do, but it fits within my M411 uh, scenario here.
0: And that brings me around to my next question is what do we think happened? Do we think that he went up, he came back, he couldn't see the torches, he couldn't see the building, he didn't know what to do, so he tried to find a place to ditch? Or did he have trouble, some kind of engine trouble or trouble with the aircraft and couldn't make it back even if he'd wanted to, because she stayed out there. I think she, I can't remember how long it was. I think it was 10 or 20 minutes or something like that when it was obvious he wasn't going to make it back. And then she went in. And the other thing that Felicity said on the record pointedly was like, well, he told me if anything went wrong, he would slow it up to a stall speed and jump out. And before we started tonight, my first theory was that he jumped out because- it's just the only thing that makes yeah. sense to me. He's up on the hill. I thought maybe he circled around for whatever reason. Maybe the aircraft was having a problem or he couldn't find Glen Forza, couldn't find the strip again. So he brings it up to this high ground and he brings it back to stall speed, which uh, we ascertained from looking up the specs on the aircraft was about 48 miles per hour, 41, I think it was, or 42 knots indicated airspeed. Knots indicated airspeed, meaning the the apparent wind against the aircraft, right, Glad That's like, it's not necessarily your speed related to the ground. It's related to the air. I think it is Glad's making space, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's what it is. What speed the aircraft thinks it's going based on the wind that's rushing past it. So that's when the stall speed, if you get below, if you get below the 42 knots indicated airspeed, then the plane's going to stall out. So I have no problem at all thinking that whatever magical thing that Peter Gibbs would need to do to get this plane almost to a stop and get out of it and then have it fly away if anybody could do that i think this guy could do that i think he has those capabilities and so my thought was oh yeah he jumped he he stalled it out up on this hill that was high ground and he knew that land would be descending in front of him he might he could have even made a couple of passes i'm going to get this as slow as i can slow as i can here's a high point there's some grass I'm gonna slow it up. I'm gonna open this door and jump out and hopefully it will continue on far enough away from me that it won't hurt me or anyone else. And so he opens the door, he, he circles around, high ground, opens the door, jumps out of the plane, tuck and roll, he doesn't get hurt. The plane glides or does whatever it's doing all the way down to the water, which is not too far away and winds up, if we're to believe this diver, winds up 300 meters out to sea. Now, the other thing, and we talked about this uh, uh, forest off the air, but one of the things that we learned about Flight 19 and one of the reasons they might not be able to find it is because if it ditched in the neighborhood of the Gulf Stream in deep water, by the time the aircraft would have gone from the surface to the bottom, they could have traveled a very long way as they're sinking. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to ascertain, and it was difficult uh, to figure this out, what the current was doing in the lock in the area where the Cessna went down and would it have drifted away from shore, had it gone down, say a hundred meters out and rather than 300 meters where this diver says that he found a Cessna. But here's the other thing about the Cessna, the photos are blurry. So the diver said he could see the numbers on the side of the field sludge. Right. But actually, he said they were on the rudder. This is what the diver said. Yeah. When on this particular plane, we know, and and with most Cessnas, the numbers on the side of the field sludge. Like, everybody knows that.
1: Yeah, it, towards the tail, right. So they're not actually yeah. on the, uh, you could say the fin, the tail fin Yeah, of the which plane. is too small. No, to be seen, right, depending on the plane, yeah. but uh, and, and yeah. some others do. But it, it, you'll see a lot of pictures uh, now the other cluing thing here is that uh, apparently Peter Gibbs's Cessna was red and white, and this yes. diver here, George, he also claimed it was red and white. So that of course, well, yeah, uh, he ties said it in. was red and right. white.
0: He said it was this the right number, which by the way, this always thought this was interesting. Yeah. The numbers actually spell or an acronym, or not an acronym, but an abbreviation for aviation. It's A V T N. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Which I thought was really, I guess that's just a coincidence. It is one of those hard to
1: uh, nail down things, uh, like yeah. everything we, we uh, find out here. You know, in a sense, diving down that deep and in murky water, even with a camera, you come back with uh, something inconclusive, which is what this ended up to be. Check this out. They also found the wheel of a Cessna two miles northwest of the hotel on the beach, and it seemed like it was probably the same kind of wheel, but no one could prove it conclusively. And there are tons of planes flying in and out of Glen Forces. So how can you know what that could be? Now, here's the thing I would put to you, Scott. Aren't people taking track of these missing parts?
0: <laughs> like, I would probably depends. I mean, that's an amateur airfield. I feel like we encountered some similar stuff. We did. We talked valintage. about this. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, being a... It was a, a uh, I think. Where, yeah. Where like, you know, once you start looking, you start finding all kinds of parts and not everything makes it onto a piece of paper. It doesn't get reported, especially if they manage to successfully land with a missing part of course, it's a big deal for that pilot. Right. But it's not necessarily something that gets documented for all history to easily go back and say, hey, this plane dropped a wheel when it was flying over, you know. They might not even know where they dropped it. Well, that
1: is that is part of it. I mean, we talked about this, though. This was in the Valentich case where part of the cowling for the engine right, had come off another yeah. plane, and they said, well, we found cowling, and it, it could be Valentage's plane. But this guy said, well, I, it did come off. I can't remember where, and it's just out there floating around. So yeah, unless you did a, a real forensic find on this thing, you could match them up. You just don't know. But here's my other point about this is that entire planes— are yeah. underwater. Did anybody yeah. notice those missing? Because again, with these descriptions with George uh, out looking for scallops, this thing was pretty damaged. Both wings were gone, yeah. big hole in the windshield, both doors closed, but this thing looked pretty damaged. And in fact, I think the engine was out of the uh, the engine bay. So oh, it was right, some distance right. from the plane. So again, the theory is like, well, if it's that busted up upon impact, yeah. could he have survived? I mean, here's the other thing: is that it, it just seems to happen. Is that there's planes underwater that no one has claimed or can't be put to or connected to a crash? Yeah, and that we're coming across a lot of these.
0: Yeah, and the more you look into this stuff, the more you find that out. So that it's like with this wheel and all this stuff, it's intriguing, but it's not inconclusive. So we don't really know what that diver saw. Right, He's, he doesn't have any pr- any proof. Right, it, it, like you said, he said the doors were locked. There was a hole. In the windscreen? I don't know. So, it, what does that mean? Does that mean he went down? And I think the next theory I had here earlier on was yeah. uh, we hit the water and maybe he couldn't open the doors from the water pressure. Yeah. So, he kicked out the windscreen Perhaps. and swam out. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Peter Gibbs seemed like he can do anything to me a little <laughs> bit. He's a little bit of a Superman. So. He would
1: have, yes, he would have shot holes into the uh, the windscreen uh, with his pistol and swam out. But, but the point being serious here is that. If he did escape the cockpit, you know, and you're holding your breath, you don't swim back to politely close the doors or could have been the currents haven't closed the door. You
0: know, think everybody's speculating. Well, been, here. Yeah, could have been a lot of, things. Could be a lot and, of and things. That's yeah. So I don't know. But then he's swimming in these heavy boots. And he hikes four hundred feet up a cliff to die on a log. Yeah. I mean mm. <laughs> I can see Gled laughing. Yes. I, I wish people could see him because it's like none of this works. <laughs> and this is something that Steve Punt said, I think, on his show, Punt PI.
1: Yes. Which is a good show by the way. It's set up like he's a detective, right? He's got a yes. he's got a, he's given a lead. He's got to investigate and he goes on scene. It's a lot of
0: fun. But that that's the thing. There's no theory that fills all the holes. There's always some glaring right. problem with each theory, right. and, and that's the thing that makes it most mysterious. Now, even Robin Warder also joked at the beginning of the mm-hmm. show. He was like, "The thing that makes the most sense here is alien," but he's like, <laughs> he's like, "But that's not what this podcast is." And he kind of walked away from it. So, yeah, but he said like, well, it hey, again. That, he, he did yeah.
1: mention it. I think he wants to say, or no, he's, he wanted. He's just setting it there. That's not what he's, he just shows gonna, he's just about. He doesn't want to get all there. the angry
0: emails we get. You yeah, know?
1: right. But it's. Uh, <laughs> The thing is, if you don't present your show that way, then people uh, get upset when you do. So for us, it's like, uh, right, you don't go into an Italian restaurant complaining that the Thai food is terrible.
2: You, right, go, right. you You gotta
1: go knowing what you're supposed to be getting here, and uh, with his show, it's straightforward and delightful presenting of all the data with his analysis. And so this was pretty enjoyable too. But yeah, what he's saying though, I, I get, was that if you allow that, you know, the alien card uh, on the table there, then maybe it starts to make more sense. But other than that, none of this, of what we know, of what the evidence is left behind makes any sense. So what are, what are we left with? Hi,
2: I'm Lance Sensei, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show.
0: I'm curious, Glenn, what do you have to say about him jumping out of the plane?
1: Yes, what does Captain Sensible here have to
2: say? Uh, <laughs> Mr. Ms- <laughs> Mr. Mr. Law and Order. Uh, and, and, uh, I, well, I'm about to okay. prove that I'm All not right. Captain Sensible. Okay. Here's, here's a couple of ideas for you. Right, so let's think about aircraft doing a touch and go mm-hmm. as they do. Pilots practice this. They land and then take straight back off again. Okay, so let's say that he loses touch with the runway. He doesn't know where that is. And let's say that you're right, Scott, he finds some high ground and he's deciding to leave over that. So what he does is he performs a touch and go on the top of a hill. And just as the wheels touch, he steps out. And <laughs> Wait, are you, are you
0: talking about like the- <laughs> Without <and> looking <laughs> back. No, it's <laughs> the- Without looking back. The, the plane pink panther He's
2: falling in the
1: shack and just before it hits, he steps out and the, the shack crashes and then <laughs> he's fine.
2: Exactly like that. I can think of some uh, silent 1920s movies where things like that exactly happened. So he he touches and goes on the top of a hill. The plane then carries on and crashes into the sea. (laughs) Okay, so I'm messing about. Let's think about Mm -hmm. the comments that he'd made to his girlfriend about reaching stall and then jumping out. I would never do that over land. I would consider that that's a possibility over water. And then the reason I would say that you wouldn't do it over land is because of the way that Scotland grows things. So on, on, on the hillside mm-hmm. of Scotland, you've got bracken, mm. you've got thistles, you've got mm. stuff, but they mm. also grow some big rocks there too. <laughs> so you're, you're not going to want to jump yeah. out and land on one of those rocks. Bearing in mind... His legs were already in a bad way after an accident that he'd previously had.
0: That's right. He was in a bad accident. I heard this on Pump P.I. His uh, son Mm. was on there and he Mm -hmm. said, yeah, his knees essentially had to be glued back together, his kneecaps. So, right. Why why would he jump if he had those injuries?
2: Yeah, I don't think you'd do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've all banged our knees, right? And we know how painful it is. This guy had his kneecaps glued back together after his car accident. So let's go back to Mm -hmm. jumping into the water, which I think is much more likely. But bearing in mind it's Christmas Eve and that water's going to be really cold. Okay, so there's a theory that he's got back onto land. He's then walked across the road and then up the hill where he's passed away. Okay, so I want you to imagine that you've got to stall speed okay and you've jumped out let's call it a hundred feet that you've landed and that's going to be like hitting concrete okay and then you manage to get yourself together and then swim to land however far that's going to be by the time you get to land you're going to be so cold and in pain that you may not even notice that the road was there And you could just carry on. And as a pilot, he knows that the best place to get a view all around is going to be from height. And of course, if he was in the water, then he's already well on his way to exposure anyway. And I think that's what's happened. I do have some concerns about the business to do with the Shepherds. Let's say the Shepherds were questioned about whether they'd seen anything before when they finally found his body and they said, no, we walked past here every day. Okay, shepherds are used to keeping their eyes out for fairly small bundles of wool. They would notice something that's out of the ordinary. But equally, mm-hmm. shepherds often have sheepdogs with them. Now, if you've got a body decomposing in the open air, yeah, where it can be seen, I'm pretty sure a sheepdog would Uh, have noticed that and gone and investigated it.
0: Right. That's absolutely true. Uh, One of our very earliest shows was uh, about a a personal friend of of ours whose dog famously found a human head in the Hollywood Hills on a hiking trail Mm. while the dog walker was walking it. Ollie. Yeah, Ollie. That story was eventually told on uh, Jimmy Fallon or Seth Meyers, I think that show. uh, Oh, really? Yeah. So that's a really good point. And it's hard to imagine that they wouldn't have been out there with dogs. Because my next thought was, you know, we don't know anything about the Shepherds. I don't want to cast aspersions on them. Their names have—whatever shepherd who said he was there the most, I think his name has come up. I don't know anything about him. This has nothing to do with him. This has more to do with the idea of eyewitnesses. They're unreliable. We've mm-hmm. got all the witnesses in at the airport, right? Who knows? They were probably all drinking and having dinner. It's Christmas Eve. It's 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. Woo! They're partying, practically. You don't know what, uh, well, I saw three landing lights. I saw 10 people moving landing lights. And then I went to my room where I had the spins. You know, there's no idea what they were really seeing out the window. He shouldn't have been flying under those circumstances. There's a lot going on there. But then by the same token, I was wondering, well, we don't know about this. Shepherds are like, oh, we're out here every day. We don't know anything about the person that says that. Are you really out there every day? Or do you not want to admit that you're not there every day? Or is there something else going on? But a dog... It's a good point. It's not going to miss it. It's not going to miss it. So, mm. Mm. that's the weirdest thing about this is the body being there for four months. And then the other thing is that we've heard it described that there was a cut on the leg, and that was the only injury. Mm-hmm. So we've got the other thing. It's like we, we've had the horrific car accident, mm-hmm. and then we've got if we jumped out of the plane, the cut on the leg, as the only injury, which doesn't make sense. And like you said, to your point, the rocks you don't know what you're going to get to when you get out. So I guess what I've come around to in terms of revising my own point of view, just since we started recording tonight, because I went into this thinking, yeah, he, you know, he's, he's kind of a badass with an airplane. He slowed it down, stepped out of it, Pink Panther style. The plane went down in the drink. And then because he was heavily buzzed, he passed out on a tree and died of exposure. But again, would he jump out of the, plane with those injuries. Maybe he would if he had a heavy buzz, which I don't even know if he had a heavy buzz. The story just said they had some whiskey and some red wine. They could have had one glass each, two glasses each. You shouldn't fly or operate a machinery with any, but we don't really know what his actual condition was when he took off in the plane. But that might have affected all of his choices, not just taking off. The whole idea of doing this experiment it might have also affected, what do I do if I get in trouble? Do I want to jump out of a moving aircraft? <laughs> all of those decisions might have been hampered by his mental condition
1: yeah right it's also said uh, to reiterate that these people on the ground that were watching him take off because it was a little bit uh it wasn't unknown that he was going to do this so as he was uh, known to have said to the staff i'm not asking for permission to fly i'm just uh, <laughs> i'm just going to do it
0: that's
2: right
1: and they yeah. noticed that he had spent a long time idling in the plane now was it uh, he was just warming it up they said he was turning the landing lights off and on quite a bit or just at least several times where they thought, uh, okay, he's checking things. That's good. You you do a pre-flight check, of course. When I went up with a friend, that was the first thing you do with the clipboard, even though it's getting fairly late at night, you still do all those things. And I believe that uh, even as bold as he was... Uh, He still checked it thoroughly because, again, it's not his plane. He doesn't immediately know how well it's taken care of. And I don't think he's doing this to, as some people would say, and uh, it's been uh, offered that uh, this was some kind of taking your life scenario. I don't think that's the case either. Again, it's hard to say, but there's no indication of that. Again, that's what people have also offered with... uh, Valentich is that, uh, oh, this was an elaborate scheme because he was failing at getting his industrial pilot's license, this and that. Well, there's no indication of that from anyone. Certainly not uh, in this case, not uh, there, there's no big fight with his girlfriend. Uh, he had a lot of business prospects going. He was there to, uh, it sounds like, really improve his business. He's about to launch into a major investment, which would uh, do him and his girlfriend well. And so it didn't sound like there was any money concerns either. He was, wasn't trying to uh, ditch and start a new life, this and that, because, of course, he, he would have failed at that, at the starting a new life part of it, is that this is some kind of strange accident. But again, there are some weird things that happened, aside from just wanting to take a flight right after dinner, in that uh, what, what they noticed from the ground. But then again, they weren't in the plane with him. They don't know what he was doing or why. And so you're just looking at somebody and speculating, especially if you're not a pilot, uh, like To Scott's point, it's like, well, they're all looking out and say, like, well, that's oddly strange. But you're you're just making a guess as to what he's doing. It's like you can wonder, you know, I, I often wonder, why is that person not moving from the parking space that I have got my <laughs> blinker on for five minutes? And, of course, uh, they're answering 50 texts when you see them leave. And it's like, okay, um, I Good get luck, that. Thank goodness alive. you're not doing that while you're driving. <laughs> but people
0: do... <laughs> <laughs> in your future endeavors.
1: People do odd things. Yeah, so I mean, t- who knows? But it's it there's a lot of speculations, But and there's a bit of odd behavior, but nothing like we've seen with other cases where, like I said, the, the comment was odd, but to his girlfriend about, uh, well, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to ditch. But but you know what? We see this all the time in the news, and I'm sure you do. I don't know if you do in the UK. We, we get lots of uh, unexpected landings on freeways here and people landing in uh flat services in fact there was one uh kind of made the big uh, national news here it was a, a very young pilot i think he was maybe under 20 very successfully landed a uh, plane with no injury i mean it, it, of course it, it goofed the plane up a little bit but he started to sputter you know he was trained to like well the highway if there's a clear spot and you can safely land without crashing any anybody that's your best bet uh, it's a good level uh flat hard surface but the highway or the freeway was too crowded in his opinion so he landed in a field successfully and just walked away from it. And, and he, yeah, he was like maybe, geez, I want to say eighteen or nineteen or whatever. But uh, they interviewed him after. Just one of those young folks with a uh, preternatural calmness of of mind. But you need that. You don't. Uh, you'll see that with a lot of private pilots. Is that uh, there's an old saying. I'm not going to say the words here. But there's two expressions. When things are messing up, you say, oh this and then when you know it's uh it's it's hopeless it's oh blank that because you know like
0: well yeah the, the <laughs> thing is when it's a when it's a serious but survivable issue it's the F yes, word. Right. And when it's when you're staring death in the face it's the S word for whatever right. reason. It's it's funny That's you think the
1: the, the the stronger of the two would be the uh the final utterance but
0: the the F bomb yeah you would think
1: the other thing that we notice with all these cases is that oftentimes especially when people are watching you again he's not out in the middle of nowhere and as i talked about earlier the acoustics are are odd or maybe unexpected here but a lot of times people will hear the engine sputtering from the ground they'll say like yeah i I saw that plane going and i heard like it was doing that and then they hear nothing and then the next thing is a crash So you don't hear any engine sputtering. You don't hear a crash. You don't hear anything at all or see anything. And again, he's down below, you know, it's a little hilly area here. Uh, He's down below the tree line or at least the the ridge line. And so he's gone from view. And so that's also odd. But generally people, getting to my point earlier is that when you're in trouble, the thing you want to do is uh, if you have the two choices, rocky hillside or water, it's cold, but it's not the raging sea. You want... A survivable scenario and i think the the two of those is going to be the water landing so if he could muster the plane you know you don't want to be a mile out from the shore but he's not that far out that is that he could do a water ditch and maybe have one 200 yards to swim back which is uh, i think doable but we we don't know that and i think a rocky landing on the side of a hill is not going to be his first choice so I would say, yeah, if he's in trouble, he's going to be heading for the water or going to try to make a water landing. The evidence is that they do find his body. So he made that landing, let's say, but then he doesn't make it back all the way. Like he's uh, he dies of exposure is the, the final ruling, but in a very odd way. And even in a water landing, it's going to bust you up a little. So maybe the, the, he got the cut from that. Maybe he got the cut from just brushing up against the the down tree that was there. We don't know, but I always find it odd too, and, and this is ironic. The people who will do three tours of Iraq, who have gone through World War II and they survive all these uh, harrowing, dangerous experiences to only pass away in something a bit more mundane or uh, you know, meet their end in some kind of um, ironic way in that if they were going to have met their end, it would have been in a more dangerous situation. But here it was an ill-advised uh, short flight.
0: The other thing to your point, too, uh, about folks hearing something is just wanted to get more specific about that. That was on uh, Steve Punt or Punt P.I.'s uh, BBC podcast. He had a, the local diver on. Mm-hmm. His name was Richard Greaves. And Richard Greaves is the one who said also that the water, a lot of times the first five feet of it was fresh water. So that was a little bit of a possible explanation towards them not finding mm-hmm. salt water on the body. The other thing that he said was it was so cold, he didn't even have a wetsuit. He had a dry suit, an eight millimeter thick dry suit, which is what he used when he went into that water. So it's hard not to imagine that that would have been something, you know, the cold water and the exposure and uh, potential hypothermia would have affected Peter Gibbs as well. But then on top of that, Greaves was the one who said he had friends that had a farm and they heard an aircraft go over their farm around 10 o'clock at night. So that would have indicated that he Mm -hmm. was still in the air, but it also... It also might have indicated that he was in a completely different area, a more urban area. So there's a certain consensus, I think, and even this is happening with me, because you have these folks saying, oh, we found this plane in the water. It was a Cessna, even though we don't have proof of that. We don't have any good pictures of it. And we don't really know if that's true in thinking, oh, well, that's where the plane is. He's up on the hill. The plane's here. But the reality is he's up on the hill is all we know. That's all we know. We don't know the plane is down below where his body was Mm -hmm. found yet. We haven't proven that. The plane could be, there's a lot of water all around there. It could be a lot of other places, which would make it even weirder because then he'd be even further from the plane. The closest place is the body of water right in front of him. So that's part of the weirdness of all of that. But the other thing, I don't think we said this outright, but it was clear that he had not fallen from the aircraft. He did not have any broken bones. I want to make that abundantly clear. It was clearly not fallen from the aircraft. And And the more you think about it, it also seems like he probably didn't jump out. So as we're wrapping up here, I just want to get to maybe some of our closing theories. We can go out on this, but we've left the one big gorilla in the room, which I'm hoping Forrest is going to bring up right now without us even having talked about it. (laughs) But it's the one remaining possibility. uh, the, The one that... Robin Warder seemed to think was the most likely. For a guy who doesn't even do a show about aliens and UFOs, his simplest explanation was that he thought maybe there had been a strange encounter. He didn't get behind that, by the way. I don't, so I don't want to put any pressure on him. For folks that are going to listen to his show, his show is true crime and true mysteries. But uh, wh- what do you think, Forrest? What do you think, uh, and, and Gled both, what do you guys think is the most... I mean, you've already said, Gled, you think he swam. That's what you think. You think he swam out and hiked up the hill and died.
2: I think that's likely.
0: And I, I can't say that that's impossible. It, it seems like a very bizarre circumstance to me, but it, I can't say that it's impossible myself. And uh, what do you think, Forrest?
1: Mister Warder is keeping his reputation intact, and uh, we have no worries about that or qualms <laughs> because uh, it's already trashed. So let's just uh, point out, or I'll run this. I'll run these items by you, fellows here, and you let me know if this fits the profile. Now as I said uh, a little while ago, is that it is like a missing 411 case. And regardless of what you think of Mr. Polaitis' character, or if his criteria is anything but baloney, or if there's any pattern at all, what I will stand by is that a lot of these cases, uh, the cases that he's covered in, in his books, have very odd circumstances often. Maybe they don't pan out, maybe they prove to be something else later, so listen to some of the criteria here that are not all of uh, David Politis's, you know, factors, but there are a few of them which make him take notice of a case. And again, I, I this is really nothing to do with him. Just listen to some of these oddities that maybe seem to line up with some of these odd cases. Like I said, because here's what we know: is that uh, this has not been satisfactorily solved. You do have a body, but but no answers. So one like a lot of these cases that happen in the woods, the person was not on a major you know, 21-day hike through the, uh, the Appalachians or the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail. It was a short trip. I'll be right back. One of those kinds of things. And you often see people who go missing that, uh, they, hey, they were just here at the campground. They said they were going to walk down to the creek. That's two minutes. There's not that many trees. Where do they go? Something like that he was stating that he was going to be right back. The the fact that he would take then a 30 or 40 or hour-long flight when his girlfriend's back at the the warm lodge or outside with the the powerful flashlights in very cold weather seems kind of rude or not very thoughtful on his case, unless something happened that he could not uh, remedy quickly. But he could have made just a couple of passes, like, well, there you go. Uh, as Glad said, a touch and go, where I just proved you could take off. It wasn't that hard to land again. Just a few more lights here. This will be a fine grass runway, especially for emergencies, which is I, I think originally why that was built. It's the only airstrip uh, in case there is a need to get somebody off the island quickly and into uh, to aid. Another thing is that, like these camping cases or out in the woods cases, is that he probably should have been seen by the patrons if he was just going to do a few loops and then land again 5 minutes it's not that long right so i would think that they would have been able to hear the plane at least if they couldn't see it or maybe have seen the plane but we don't know his flight path he didn't register anything there was there was no flight path he was just kind of goofing around but again that's where people have said that they will be in sight they're right behind somebody on the trail the person ahead of them looks back and suddenly they're not on the trail. They've just vanished. Or they walked ahead and went around a bend and the uh, the person who lives at the Tell the Tale comes around the bend and they're nowhere to be found. Uh, did they fall? Who knows? The other thing is that, uh, again, no one heard a splash or crash. You would have think that if there was uh, some kind of water ditch that... It, it's hard to tell with the conditions that, that night. But another thing about that is that also in a lot of these cases, a sudden bad weather front pops up. And this is not even just a mysterious cases, of course, as we've said in that series, the outdoors and the sea and the air are dangerous places to be. Things can happen all the time. But this is another element is that suddenly bad weather that hampers the search pops up. And in this case, The next day, there was a a driving sleet storm, or maybe even that night, I think, it it started to build, which hampered search efforts, especially in the dark, and visibility. So that hampered the searching that night and uh, in the day to come. The area was searched the next day at daylight, and I would guess, because it's so close to the road, if you believe one account, it's only 400 feet up the hill, totally visible from the road. But nobody found anything in, in searching all of that area. He wasn't, like I said, way in the highlands here. He's pretty close to the road and, the, and not too far from the coastline. But he wasn't found. So after an extensive search, no body is found. Yet the body is found four months later, but by shepherds who walked that area all the time and didn't see anything. And that's an odd factor, as we've stated, but also one that matches with these strange... Out in the woods, cases where they do an extensive search, they've searched an area multiple times, and then suddenly later on, something is found which seems to have been obvious or should have been obvious. Well, again, that just happens. But if you want to tie that in with uh, space visitors, what do we hear in the Terry Lovely story about the the two uh, young sisters in Oklahoma yes. by the by the levee, and that they remember that they saw the yes. the carousel that was levitating off the ground. And they basically just took a long, weird nap, if you don't believe in any of this at all, but their parents and the, the whole area of farmers, they searched yeah. that area thoroughly a bunch of times in boats, in that, uh, that water nuisance, that attractive nuisance, and they didn't see them at all. And suddenly, then they were, were just there. And then they were noticed where it's like, we, we've, there's 50 people here. We looked at that side of that, uh, that levee, and we swear an hour ago, they weren't there. And then they suddenly just pop up. The case that he was just found also, you know, fully clothed, but in a weird condition, splayed over this log, and I think entangled in some of it, where they had to cut him loose from some of the branches. So he's found in a weird spot and in a weird position. And the body, uh, what they found, also doesn't match the theory that he ditched out of a plane or he he water ditched. And like I said, he didn't get banged. I mean, yeah... even with the harness in there it was 5 point harness you still can get pretty banged up in a in a water ditching and he doesn't have any of those injuries that match that's also sometimes like people whose remains have been found it's and again yes that somebody brought up a good point here that i think it was lawyer dad who who communicated with us after the 411 series and that you know when we said that uh, cause of death unknown it's not that mysterious it says, maybe you just found a, a bit of bone or, you know, a jawbone or some fragment of a person, and it's not enough evidence to determine how they died. Again, it's still kind of odd, though, that that's all you found of them. Here, he's relatively intact. There was a bit of decomposition, but enough that they were able to determine that he did not have serious injuries, which would be consistent of a, uh, of a plane crash or jumping out of a plane. So once again, the remains found are, and the condition they were found in are not consistent with any of the theories proposed that make more sense. Found in a strange position, also like one of these cases, or politus would suggest, is that that happened close to water, or water's an element of this. So again, that's that's reaching, I'm not trying to make a connection here that this is a 411 case, it's just odd that the oddities... Some of them overlap or seem to match this in its strangeness in that, like I said, you found the guy, but it just, there's even more questions since you found the guy, not less. You think there would be some closure. There isn't any closure with this. And and also varying descriptions of uh, what you would think would be solid evidentiary descriptions of the condition of the body. But those vary. It's just very weird, and in this case, I don't think uh, you'll find anything further, even if you did find the plane. Even if you were to drag the plane up from mole sound, I don't think that's going to solve any mystery, and I think that would bring even further mysteries. You're going to be confounded if you find more evidence. That's the irony of this case, I think. But I think here's where we have to leave it until we, we find out more. It's just like all the other ones, like Flight 19... Frederick Valentich, it's a lot of these aviation mysteries end in this way. And I think because you've involved the element of, uh, of a medium, in this case, the air and the water and the land that, uh, you
0: know, it's a great place to harbor mysteries. Well, Glad, do you have any other thoughts before we uh, close out this episode?
2: I do. And I, I want to pick up on what Forrest said about weird, that weird things happen. And in aviation, weird things happen, just like in any other part of life. So I was put Mm. in mind of an incident that happened back in 1970. So we're talking five years before this one. A Royal Air Force interceptor jet being flown by an American pilot who was attached to the Royal Air Force just on an exchange visit. And uh, he was flying this English electric Lightning F6 interceptor. And he happened to crash in the North Sea, not a million miles away from Bempton, which is a place that comes up again and again. Mm, Yes. The aircraft was uh, subsequently found and the cockpit was closed. And the, um, what do we call this, the canopy that's on top of the cockpit, Mm -hmm. that's shut. No pilot. So we know from the examination of the wreckage that there was an attempt to eject, but no pilot. So it's just another one of those weird things. It's never been explained. The pilot's body's never been recovered. And it's just odd. And it puts me in mind of, uh, you know, you, you talk about missing 411. I'm going to now... Dub this Aviation 411. Um, and, you know, these just odd things, they happen. We as human beings love the intrigue with this and we we latch onto it. And I think that's why podcasts are so well-received and and mysteries like this are so well-received as well.
1: I totally concur, sir, that these types of stories are in a genre all of their own in a way. And to Scott's point earlier, I don't know if he wants to come back and, and really connect this with aliens, but I would say if you're going to entertain UFOs and aliens, is it a case where they uh, snatched Mr. Peter Gibbs out of his plane for a little visit, accidentally killed him, or he just expired? They're like, oops, uh, just, just dump him there. <laughs> just, just put him back there and uh, they'll deal with it. I don't think that sounds very likely, but the, who knows? Uh, what I'm saying is that I think if you're going to attribute it to something paranormal or otherworldly, it's the umbrella over UFOs and aliens, and that is what we've come to know as the phenomena. The Great Sargasso Sea, as Charles Fort may have called it, where things disappear into for a while and then pop back out. Remember, as he said, uh, the case of the frogs where people said, uh, well, that's just a whirlwind scooping up tadpoles from a a nearby pond. And then the frogs come down after a little while, uh, once the winds die down. And that's why it rains frogs. And yet Ford pointed out like, well, no, these are full grown frogs. And also the weird thing is that they were uninjured. They are live frogs, not dropped from a great height. So it's like they, uh, some kind of opening happened a few feet off the ground. And that's where the frogs came from because they're hopping around fine. Not like they were dropped a hundred feet from the air. And so there's all these, all, all these inconvenient, unsatisfactory points about the things that happen with the phenomena. I think if you're going to attribute it to something otherworldly and paranormal, it's got to fall under that rubric. Well, Scott, what do you, uh, what's, your, what's your final button on this one? Is it, is it aliens?
0: Well, as much as I'd like it to be, I feel like I can't put this one in that column for a couple of reasons. Mm. I would like to do that. But the main thing is there aren't any contemporaneous reports of UFOs, lights, anything unusual, no weird sounds, no sight. Uh, No one saw anything Uh, from the airport. They were all glued to the windows waiting for him to come back. Right. No one saw anything strange, right? So I can't do the alien thing.
1: Okay. I'm not willing to go there because like I said, this is not the uh, Fred Belintich case where he reported on radio that there was a bunch of weird lights and people just said, look, well, you're flying upside down. You're just looking at the reflection off the ocean of Venus. It's always Venus, you know, uh, satellites, whatever it is, they're putting up Starlink, you know, 50 years too early. Whatever people are claiming this is, that's a lot to go on that makes you wonder if you do believe that there's uh, the extraterrestrial possibility here. We don't have a lot to go on except for one comment. And this comes from the brother of the owner of the hotel who was with his wife and they were looking through binoculars. Oh, so they got uh, binoculars right. because yeah. it was like, you know, look, it's fun. It's like, it's Christmas Eve. Like what's this guy up to? I mean, it's not advised, but what a wild and willy chap. We'll see what he's going, uh, going to do here because yeah. I mean, he, like, as we said before, it was uh, ill-advised weather's coming in. And it was the entertainment for the evening. You know, this is 1975, yeah. right? People didn't just yeah. retreat to their iPads in their rooms, right? Right. So right. let's all see what he's doing. They tur- they turn down the lights or turn them off in the bar. They're looking through binoculars, and that's where we said before is that the other odd thing is that it looked like uh, there's two torches, two flashlights, which are fairly high powered enough for them to see from the hotel, especially they're looking. Right. And they thought that the the lights were going in two different directions. Wait, wait that is there a third person on the airfield? How right, could she do right. that? Her own her arms only stretch out so far. So right. that's something odd that they claim yeah. to have seen. But they also said that they thought a flare was out over the water of the sound
0: Right, Of I forgot Moll. about the
1: flare. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just after he took off, I believe, is when the timing is. So he just takes off. They see a flare. Now, also, this is not a military aircraft of the era where there are heat-seeking missiles to launch countermeasures like that. It's just a private plane. Maybe he threw a flare out the
0: window, but it's odd. And that would have just fallen. It could have had a flare gun on board and it was a distress signal.
1: There you go. Possibly.
0: Or was it a UFO?
1: Well, okay. So if you're going to make any connection, I think it's a little thin, but the only thing that sounded UFO-y to me was this red light out over the water. But we don't get much more of a description from the couple about how this flare was behaving. Was it zigzagging around? Because of course now what comes to mind is the red sport model from course encounters, uh, zipping, (laughs) zipping with the other ones. We're just kind of zipping around orb who knows. So that was the only thing I could see that would be unusual perhaps. But like you said, if it was just a flare and it behaved like a flare and maybe he shot it out the window, who knows, then it's just a flare. But then that does indicate maybe some danger Yeah, I don't know a signal. You know, if you want to get conspiratorial, that uh, Peter was up to some risky business. Perhaps it was a signal to somebody on the ground or someone else when they were doing their spy or smuggling or whatever. Their you know people proposed that he was doing. So that was about it. Like I said, that's not quite enough. So to me, that looks like it could be the only thing described that was perhaps slightly otherworldly, and everything else is worldly, but just out of this world as far as evidence.
0: I guess I think this falls into one of those categories. You know, you watch these shows about aviation disasters and a lot of times they say the really serious ones are a culmination of three unexpected things going wrong. Mm. Not one, not two, but three. And the third one is that puts it over the top. And I think in this scenario, there's at least two things. And I think we only know one of them. We only know one of them. I think he couldn't find the airport. We don't know if the plane malfunctioned. We don't know what happened after that. And based on the evidence we have now, like Forrest said, even if they find the plane, they bring it up, I don't know that that's going to answer any of the questions. I mean, at the very least, you know, accident investigators are good. They can tell if the prop was spinning when it hit the water because it'll be bent sometimes, that kind of thing, or the state of the fuel uh, damage it might have suffered from an impact as opposed to corrosion or whatever. There may be some additional questions answered, but ultimately— I don't think that would answer it either. So I'm going to go back to something Forrest used to say in the early days of the show. And sometimes these are the best kind of episodes. Yeah. And that is, we're just going to have to live with the question. That's going to wrap up our show on The Great Mole Air Mystery. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show. Join our Patreon to hear us on the much more candid Astonishing Junk Drawer, which most of the time we do live on video for our patrons at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends.
1: Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana.
0: Austin Valancourt. I'm Lance Sensei. Hi, I'm Nate Picos. P I Z Z A P I E. V-I-L-L-A-I-N
1: Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Special thanks to our announcer, John Boland.
0: Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at FounderMusic.com and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough.
1: Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at DeadStreetProductions.com.
0: Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to AstonishingContact at gmail.com. Astonishing
1: Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube.
0: You can also visit us at patreon.com/astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week. The main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.